This is the Sunday morning message broadcast from Church of God Holiness in El Dorado Springs. Hey! 
Thank you, Strong Tower. Strong voices. Strong Tower. Thank you very much. I uh, really was going to talk about fog today, but then there, something happened uh, this week that reminded me of fire, and so I was kind of conflicted, wondering if I should talk about fire or fog. I told the uh, group earlier this morning that, uh, I think it was Thursday, I was in Nevada and uh, went to the post office and uh, was coming out of the post office and I looked across the street at Great Southern Bank and there was a large bush up against the building, the bank, it was on fire. The bush was on fire and it wasn't being consumed. This is weird. And I thought, is this a sign or what? But I, I uh, whipped out my cell phone and immediately called 911, and uh, the fire trucks were on the way. In the meantime, a lady came running out of the bank, and uh, she had a uh, business suit on and high heels, and she had a little bucket of water, and I threw this bucket of water on the bush. It didn't do anything, but um, about that time I heard the fire trucks coming, so I knew everything was under control, so I just left the woman in the bucket, and I got in my car, and I left. And then uh, Saturday morning, I just—I knew that bush had to burn up, but I, um, I went back Saturday morning and looked at the bush, and it's still there, and it's still healthy, and it's kind of weird. And I, someone said, well, Dennis, did you take off your sandals at the burning bush? And I said, no, I, I should have. I think God is, I don't know, maybe telling me to lead some of you out of Egypt. I don't know. Anyway. Well, let's forget about the fire. Let's talk about some fog here today. Um, Paul wrote these words in Ephesians 1, 18, about having our eyes open. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people, and his incomparably great power for us who believe. So Paul says... Man, you guys need to have your eyes open to what's going on here. I've been there, I've talked to you, I've shared with you, but uh, there's still some scales there. I'm just praying that your eyes would be opened up to the greatness of God in your life. One of Satan's strategies is to convince us that we are not at war, while at the same time he's flying over our heads ready to drop a nuclear bomb on our, our head He wants us to be at peace. Satan wants to comfort you, relax you, and and get your mind off the spiritual battle that you're in. He wants you to feel good about yourself and give little attention to the daily war that you are in. So a lot of Christians just kind of trip through life uh, unaware that every day they are just being carpet bombed by Satan. Other Christians are very aware that they're in a spiritual warfare But they're kind of confused by everything. They're blinded by the evil one. And they're blinded by what a 19th century military strategist called the fog of war. We're all in the fog of war. Carl Van Klautswitz, once he he wrote, War is the realm or is lived in the realm of uncertainty. In war, three quarters of the factors on which action is based are wrapped in a fog of greater or lesser degree. A sensitive and discriminating judgment is called for. A skilled intelligence to scent out the truth. 
Well, the idea is pretty simply, anytime you are in the midst of a war, you just don't know what you're dealing with. You don't know what the enemy's like. You don't know where he's going to attack or when he's going to attack or how much ammunition he's got. You don't know your own capabilities. You don't know the best strategy. And everything is just happening so quickly and, and, and so rapidly that you just don't know what to do. You're living in a fog, just like you would drive on a, a highway here in southwest Missouri and, and just not know where you're going. Of course, headlights do nothing more than help you see more clearly the fog. That's all they do. So uh, it was uh, in light of this fog-like condition uh, that covers the eyes of so many people that the Apostle Paul wrote these words. Uh, this is 2 Corinthians 4.4. Uh, 4. The God of this age has blinded the minds of of the unbelievers, so that they, they cannot see the light of the gospel that displays the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. So what are the, what are the things that are producing fog in our lives every day? Well, just about everything. Our daily activities, the things that seem so important and so significant and so interesting. Have you ever noticed how sports commentators take their work so seriously. Sometimes I just want to just, just walk up to those guys and, and slap them across the face and say, guys, it's not that big of a deal. You aren't nearly as important as you think you are. A, few, a year from now, no one will even remember who this football game was between, much less who won. But they are serious about their football. Then you've got demanding jobs. You've got bosses and kids and politics and church activities. And daily you've got this tsunami of information that's washing over your soul. Information from the television and the internet and texting and everything just comes flooding into your life. You've got illness, depression, conflict. All of these things kind of combined and heat up and they just kind of produce this fog, like a fog machine that just constantly spewing out fog in your life and you're not seeing as clearly as you think you are. Because you're in a war. Every day you're in a war. So Paul's prayer is very relevant to us. He says that he prays that the eyes might be opened uh, here to, to see the things of God, that your eyes might be enlightened, that you might know the hope to which you were called, that you might know the riches that you have inherited, and that you might know the incomparably awesome power available to you from the God who loves you. That's what he prays. And that prayer is very relevant for us today. So what specifically do we need to see more clearly? What, what is it that we need to see better? Well, number one, I think we need to see and have a better grasp of the sweeping nature of God's grandeur, his plan, his purposes, uh, his power. It's just, most of us, I tell you the truth, have much, much too small a picture of God. Most of us in America today have a God that's kind of domesticated, we might say. He's a manageable God. He's, he's one we can work with. We kind of 
draw upon him when we need to. Um, he's kind of tame. He's easy to work with. But he's a pretty small God. Daniel 4.35 All the peoples of the earth are regarded by him as nothing. That's kind of an insult, isn't it? But if God considers us at all, it is an act of his grace. He does as he pleases with the powers of heaven and the peoples of the earth. No one can hold his hand back and nobody can say to him, what did you just do? No. God is God. He's on the throne and he is in control. You know, at one point in the book of Isaiah, it, it's almost like God is incredulous about the, the worship of the Israelites. And it's almost like he's saying, you know, guys, you're not really serious about worshiping these idols, are you? This is a joke, right? You get a piece of wood and you carve up this little piece of wood and you make a little statue, a little toy. And then, you, and then you're worshiping this, right? That's a joke, right? You're not really doing that, are you? Yeah, yeah, we're doing that. No, no, really. You're not, you're not worshiping a little toy, are you really? Yeah. That's what we're doing. God just is thinking, you've got to be kidding, right? You're not worshiping this little toy. Well, we do the same thing. We kind of worship this, worship that, people, places, money, houses, whatever, jobs, careers. But God just can't believe what we're doing. Let's take a look at Isaiah 40, 25. To whom will you compare me? Or who is my equal? Lift up your eyes and look to the heavens. Who created all of these? Do you not know and have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. Think of the power of a thunderstorm. Did you know that right now, this very second... Somewhere in the world, there are lots of thunderstorms going on. In fact, a lot of thunderstorms. Anywhere at any given point around the world, on the planet, there are at least 1,800 thunderstorms taking place. That's a lot of thunderstorms all the time taking place. More than 100 lightning bolts strike the earth every second of every day of every year. 100 a second. Boom, boom, boom. That's a lot of lightning. Do you know how lightning can, how fast it can travel? 60,000 miles per second. Never try to outrun lightning. You're going to lose every time. The average length of a lightning bolt is about two to three miles. And the temperature, the temperature on the surface of a lightning bolt, any ideas? I, know, I asked this earlier this morning and some guy raised his hand and said, hot. I said, how hot? Hot. It's very hot. The average temperature uh, of a lightning bolt on the surface of the bolt can reach 50,000 degrees Fahrenheit. That's five times hotter than the surface of the sun. And yet how much more powerful is the God who made that lightning bolt? How much more infinitely uh, powerful is God than that lightning bolt? Speaking of storms, let's talk about rain. In fact, let's just, well, let's just talk about one little drop of rain. 
let's say here in Alvarado Springs, uh, some nice summer day, we have a little rainstorm and we're able to capture one drop of rain. Now, inside that one drop of rain, there are lots of molecules, lots of molecules. Each molecule is made up of two hydrogen atoms and one oxygen, H2O. And you have a molecule of water. But instead of talking about just one molecule of water, let's try to figure out how many molecules are swimming around in that one drop of water. That's a lot of them. I bet there's a lot of them. Well, I did some research and I finds out, yep, I was right. There's a lot of them, a lot of molecules in one drop of water. Any idea how many? In the millions, right? Nah, much bigger than that. Billions, right? No. Trillions, no. no yeah, if you're talking trillions, no, you're not even in the ballpark. Inside one drop of water, there are six times ten to the 21st power molecules. Now, I didn't even know how to say that number. It's a six followed by 21 zeros. I had no idea what it meant. So I had to Google it further just to find out how to pronounce the word. Here's how many molecules are inside one drop of water. Six sextillion molecules. I just, I don't even know what that means. Other than that, there's a lot of molecules inside a drop of water. God is wonderful. He is so intricate. He is so perfect. He is so good. Let's think about the bigger world. Think with me about the universe. The universe is something great to study because it expands the mind and gives us an awesome picture of how God is just so big and so awesome. Uh, I, like to, I like to look at the universe. I like to think about it. It's hard to comprehend. Now, they say that if you go from one end of the universe to the next, uh, it, it, it would take a beam of light 150 billion years. You know how fast light is. Light, you, know, you turn on the flashlight and it's immediately clear at the other side of the building. You turn on a flashlight at one end of the universe and for that beam of light to get to the other end of the universe, 150 billion years. What's a billion? I don't know. I have no idea. Now, one guy in my Sunday school class said, Dennis, what happens? This was after the sermon this morning. He came up to me and says, what happens when you get to the end of the universe? I said, there's a little sign there that says it's the end of the universe. Like, I really know that. Answer. But, you know, there's always a smart aleck in every crowd. Well, let's, uh, let's talk about the universe a little bit. And, and because it is so big, we just can't even get our minds around it. Let's just talk about our neighborhood, okay? Uh, our neighborhood has a name, by the way. If anybody ever asks you where you live in the universe, this is your address. Ready? The Milky Way. That's where you live. That's your neighborhood. Big cities, New York, London, Tokyo, huge, huge cities have smaller little uh, parts of the community and then you break those into smaller little parts and you finally get down to a little neighborhood. Well, our little neighborhood in the universe is called the Milky Way. It's not very little though. Our neighborhood's pretty, eh, pretty big, I guess you would say, kind of average size neighborhood. Um, 
it's, it's made up really of a, of a lot of stars. In our little neighborhood that we call the Milky Way, there are about 300 billion stars. And what's a star? A star is just like another sun. And of course, a lot of stars are much bigger than our sun. Um, our sun, again, is kind of average size, average to small size star. But there are 300 billion stars in our tiny little neighborhood. We are just, we're not even, I don't know what we would be. We'd be a very, very small part of that neighborhood. But here's the amazing thing. This thing, this neighborhood we call the Milky Way is, is a galaxy. And in our galaxy, as I said, there's 300 billion stars. Moons, planets, all kinds of stuff. What we don't realize is that there are a lot of other galaxies out there. There's not just the Milky Way. The Milky Way is one of, are you ready for this? Everybody sit down. The Milky Way is one galaxy out of about two, starts with a T, trillion galaxies. Feeling small? I sure do. So where is God in all this? Big, beyond it, out of control. Does that sound like a God you can trust? I think so. Isaiah 40, 22. He sits enthroned above the circle of the earth and his people are like grasshoppers and yet he knows you and he's concerned about you. The Bible says, let's bring it way, 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 way down a song. He formed you in your mother's womb. If, you don't, if you're not turned on by all this universe stuff, can you be turned on by the fact that God created you in your mother's womb? He formed you. He fashioned you. The Bible says, in fact, He knit you together, stitch by stitch, chromosome by chromosome, in your mother's womb. You are exactly what God wants you to be. And the Bible says that before you were even born... Before your days even came to be, all of your days, every one of your days was written in the book of God. He knew when you would be born. He knows when you'll die. He knows when he's going to come and say, time to go to heaven. It's just almost mind-boggling to think how warm and tender and personal our God is. Somewhere walking around here is our new grandchild, our daughter and our grandchild are visiting today. And I just look at Sylvie and I just think, what a tremendous blessing she is. To think that God created in her mother's womb uh, this wonderful new baby. So we need to ask God to open our eyes to the sweeping nature of his grandeur and his power and his goodness. You know, there's a lot of talk today about stories, about, you know, everyone has a story and, you know... Even non-Christians have a story to tell. You know, what's your story? What's my story? And uh, uh, a very trendy word recently has been your narrative. What is, what is the grand narrative of your life, or the grand story? Well, I would suggest that there's really only one narrative. There's only one, one story in the universe, and it's really God's story. He, this whole thing... 
from eternity to eternity, from Genesis to Revelation. It is all God's story. It's not like you have your own little personal story and your own little personal universe and you're the center of the universe. No, you, the, the, the neat thing is that you're actually part of his story. That's what makes you significant. You're not important because modern psychology tells you you're important. You are important because God has put his finger upon you. He's tapped you. He's moved in your heart. He's softened your heart. You've put faith in Jesus. And now you're part of his family. You're part of the story. I think that's neat. I think it's neat that you are part of his story. You know, and I've used this illustration before, too, that, that, that it's like sitting in a, in a movie theater. You're watching this amazing movie, and uh, it's a thrilling movie. It's kind of fascinating. You're just enthralled in it. And about halfway through the movie, you look up and, whoa, you're in the movie. What's going on here? That's what happens, though, as you read the Bible. You read the Bible, and you've got the grand sweep of history, and you've got God's story. It's his narrative. And then you become a Christian, and all of a sudden you realize, whoa, I'm in here. I'm part of the story. I'm in the movie. Not because of anything I've done, because of what he has done in my life to bring him into his family. I'm a son. You're a daughter. We're part of the family of God. So your significance, and you are significant, is not because psychology tells you you're important. You're important because God has saved you and you're part of his family. I think that's neat. God has begun a work in you. Philippians 1, 6. See if we can put that up on the screen. Philippians 1, 6. Um... There we go. Being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on until the day of Christ Jesus. Um, God has begun a work in you. And he's going to carry on that work until the, until the day that Jesus comes back. The fact that you are even here tells me that God is working your life. You know? The fact that you believe in Jesus tells me that God is at work in your life. Um, Even if you aren't a believer, you're at least here and you're thinking about the things of God, so God is at work in your life. And the neat thing is here is that that, that God is going to carry on this plan until the day you die, until Jesus comes for you. We need to remember that God is working out everything for your good so that you might be more like Jesus. You know, what did Paul say, um, um, God is at work, God is using all things to work together for your good, that you might be more like Jesus. And uh, he does use all things for our our good. He never stops working uh, in your life. He's always working behind the scenes on your behalf. Now, Joseph found out the hard way uh, about how God was at work in his life. Joseph is a man who lived in the Old Testament in the book of Genesis. He was this guy who uh, really... Boy, I would not have wanted it to be Joseph. I mean, he was a smart dude and a great administrator, but the things he had to go through to get to where he was, uh, he had a bunch of brothers and they sold him. Actually, they threw him in a hole in the ground. And then some people came by and, and they said, hey, rather than kill Joseph, um, let's, just, let's just make some money on this deal. So they sold him to some people walking through and these, these uh, people bought Joseph and then, of course, they were going to sell him into slavery in Egypt and that's exactly what happened. 
So Joseph ends up in, in Egypt, and he's a slave there, and through some unfair accusations, uh, he actually ends up not only being a slave, he ends up in prison. And he's there languishing and, you know, year after year. I don't know how long it was, but he was in prison a long time. And it just looked like he was going to stay there forever. And, but finally, uh, through the, uh, as the story goes on, God gets him out of prison and, and makes him the second most powerful man in Egypt. And he's able to administer the grain and all of the, the food in Egypt and help that nation make it through the worst famine it had ever experienced. And so uh, he went from being a slave to being kind of the prime minister of Egypt and basically saving that nation from a famine. Well, as the story finally ends up, you know what's going to happen. Those guys that sold him into slavery, those brothers, they're eventually going to run into him again. And they do. They come to Egypt. They don't recognize him. It's been many, many years. Joseph is a very, very wealthy man now. He's the, second, he's the prime minister of Egypt. He's the, he's the number two guy in the whole land. And so these guys, these uh, brothers of his show up. They don't recognize him. They don't know who he is. But finally, uh, it's like Joseph says, it's time to kind of open their eyes, we might say. And Joseph says, hey, guys, I'm it. I, remember me? Remember the guy you sold into slavery? Uh, that's me. Uh, I'm Joseph. Now, of course, at that point, they're thinking, we're dead. I mean, they're going to call the soldiers in here. Off with their heads. Yeah, that's not what happened. Joseph said, relax, guys, chill. I am your brother, Joseph, the one who you sold into slavery. And now, don't be distressed and do not be angry with yourselves for selling me here because it was to save lives because God sent me here. You guys didn't do it. God sent me here. The great summary statement at the end of Genesis is Genesis 50, 20. As for you, you meant evil against me. But God meant it for good. To bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. Probably millions of people were kept alive because of this man's incredible administrative skill in managing that nation through that great famine. But you look back on Joseph's life and when he was in that hole in the ground and when he was in that prison and when he was all but forgotten and left for dead, I don't think at that point he was thinking God's in this. And there's going to be a lot of times in your life where you're going to think, just God has left me. I... I don't see how in the world any of this makes sense. Why is God doing what he's doing? Well, Joseph kind of had his eyes open and he says, well, uh, it was God who sent me here. God has been in control of my life. From the womb to the tomb, God is with you every step of the way. It was that way with Joseph and it was that way with Jesus there on that Good Friday as the men were, the disciples were seeing Jesus kind of uh, carted off and beaten and led, led to Calvary. I'm sure all of the disciples thought, it's over, it's done. This, there is no way, There's, there is no good ending here. This thing is not ending well. Oh, yes, it was. It was 
That was the middle, the perfect part of God's plan. That was the apex of human history when Jesus hung on a cross and he died for our sins that we might be forgiven of our sins and have eternal life. That was the culmination of world history. That weekend, Easter, and then, I mean, Good Friday, and then Easter, uh, that whole weekend was, was God's perfect will. But if you would have been there, I know what you would have said. This is not going to end well. This is terrible. They have beaten Jesus to within an inch of his life. They put a beam, of, a big beam of wood across his back. He can hardly walk. And they're taking him outside the city and they're going to nail him to a tree. This is not good. It's the same way in your life. It is good. I don't know what's happening and I can't explain it and I'm not going to try. But I do know that if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, God is working all things together for your good, that you might be more like Jesus, and that you might enjoy Him forever and ever and ever. This is the pregame! We're not there yet, guys! Come on! We are not there yet! This is just a warm-up! And we're so wrapped up in this world, and we're so worried about this world, and, we're, and there are real heartaches! I understand that. There is real tragedy in this world. And I cannot and I will not explain it. I don't know why. Any more than I can explain why, what happened to, what Joseph, to Joseph or to Jesus. Why did they have to beat Jesus so much? Why did he have to suffer so much? I don't know. But I know that God is in control. And he is right now making us ready for heaven. And when you finally die, when you finally leave this planet, either through the rapture or through your, your death, you're one day going to leave this planet and you're going to go into the presence of God and it's like God, Jesus is going to say, all right, you ready to start? This is day one. That's to start. You're not there yet. This is the pregame. We've got a great God. And He has saved you. And He is working in you. And He is getting you ready for heaven. Set your mind on eternity. Set your mind on eternity. I know it's hard to do. I can't remember if I've done Psalm 118. The stone which the builders rejected, that was Jesus. It became the the chief cornerstone. And the Lord has done this. That, I think, is the key to that whole verse. The Lord has done this. He's in control. Oh boy. Let's try Ephesians 2.10. He creates us and then he recreates us. He made us alive once and now he's made us alive again. We are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works. He made you in your mother's womb and then through the Holy Spirit he made you in the, 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 the person of Jesus. He, we're sort of like in Christ. We've been formed in Christ and everything, every time Jesus looks at you he sees Jesus. Every time, God, every time God looks at you he sees the wounds, he sees the blood, he sees the forgiveness, he sees the cross. God never sees you except through the lens of Jesus. He always... Why? Because you are in Jesus. The Apostle Paul alone, the Apostle Paul alone, 163 times in the Bible, 163 times says you're in Christ. You are in Christ. You are in Christ. You can't get out. You are in Jesus. Why would anybody even want to be out? 
You are in him. Hold on to him and believe me, he will hold on to you. And that's a wonderful place to be, to be in Jesus. And every time Jesus sees you, every time God sees you, there's Jesus. God cannot conceive of you apart from Jesus. And I think that is wonderful. That is fantastic. I think I'm ready for my third point is that we need to see the glory of God. Um, we need to see the glory of God. The ultimate goal is not so much you know, just the streets of gold and mansions and things like that. The, the ultimate goal is to see and to enjoy the glory of Jesus. One Christian author asked this of modern readers. He says, a critical question for our generation is this. If you could go to heaven with no sickness and with all of your friends there, and if you could have all the food you ever liked and all of the leisure activities you enjoyed, and if you could in heaven have all of the natural beauties you've ever seen and all of the physical pleasure you've ever experienced, and if you could have no conflict or no natural disasters, would you be satisfied in heaven if Jesus wasn't there? I don't know. What would that typical American Christian say to all of that? It sounds like a pretty good deal. A perfect world. But Jesus isn't there. It sounds like hell to me. He's the goal. He's the treasure. He's what you're after. Okay? He is the treasure. The good news really is Jesus and having him. That's why Jesus saves us. 1 Peter 3.18, he wants to bring us to God. 1 Peter 3.18, For Christ also suffered once for sin, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to the streets of gold. No, that doesn't, I can't read that. That he might bring us to our mansion. No, that doesn't say that. Oh, that he might bring us to God. Oh, God is the goal. I always thought it was those streets of gold. No, that's not, no. God is the goal. He is the treasure. You know, our, our, our problem, I think, today is oftentimes that with our language and everything, we just kind of try to... God sort of becomes a, a way to realize the American dream. And we look at God and His Word and look for little practical tips and little practical hints. And here's you know, something that's going to make my marriage better. And here's something that's going to make my job better. And just, I just need little tips. I need little hints. And God basically kind of exists just to help me be a better, better American or something like that. And, you know, some of the language used, we use a lot of business language in the church. And we talk about goals and visions and management and marketing and impact and uh, market uh, penetration. And we talk about, you know, uh, influence and excellence and efficiency. And all of these things are kind of, kind of have a veneer or a feeling about them of success and... You know, it's, it, somehow in all of this we lose the fact that it's really all about Christ. It's all about Jesus. Um, heaven is about Him. The Christian life is about Him. It's not about our success. It is about Jesus. So, the Bible says this. This is Psalm 145.3. Great is the Lord and most worthy of praise. His greatness no one can fathom. That... You know, I guess if you walk out of here with nothing else, walk out of here with the second part of that verse. His greatness no one can fathom. If you think you've got a handle on God, you're in trouble. Yeah. 
You don't. You have no idea who you're dealing with. And it's a good kind of a deal. He is so much better, so much more powerful, so much more awesome, so much more intricately involved in your life. You can't even imagine how much he is involved in your life. You might not feel it, but he's there and he's working. And that's good. His greatness no one can fathom. I think maybe now you understand why God is described in the Bible as a treasure. A treasure. You probably remember the, the story of this guy in the, in the uh, New Testament. He's kind of walking along the, the, the countryside and he, and he looks down and there's, uh, it looks like there's kind of a, a little bit of fresh dirt or something and he kind of starts digging around in this, and there's a treasure in there and it's just like billions of dollars. Unbelievable treasure. And this, this is the way the secular world would do it, but Jesus is making a point here in this parable. He covers it up, he um, makes it so like no one can see the treasure, and then he goes and he sells everything, and he buys the land. Now, in those days, if when you bought the land, you got everything on the land. If it was in the land, it's yours. He was the only one that knew that that treasure was there. He sold everything. He went to the, you know, moved every mountain. He just pulled out all the stops. He was all in so that he could buy that land because once he knew he had the land, it was over. Now, here's the point. God is the treasure, okay? It's not the church. It's not your American lifestyle. Uh, It's not your comfort. Um, It's not the streets of gold. Jesus is the treasure, and what Jesus says is, hey guys, cash out. Cash out. Go all in. Go all in in order to have Jesus. He's in the process of getting you ready for heaven. He's in the process of helping you spend eternity with him. Cash out, guys. Go all in. Whatever you need to do to get Jesus and to serve him and to love him, you do it. Jesus tells the story of a, uh, of a master. He has ten servants, and he gives each of them, we'll say, a thousand dollars. They called it a mina back in those days. A thousand here, a thousand here, a thousand here. And, the, and these guys were supposed to put the money to use while the master was on a trip. The guy was going to go somewhere and become king of this whole area. He became king. He came back, and he called him in and says, All right, I gave you a thousand, you a thousand, you a thousand. What'd you do with it? The first guy said, Well, I took your thousand and I made ten more. Here's ten thousand dollars. And the master said, Great job. Good job. I'm going to put you in charge of ten cities. The guy who had, uh, another guy, he says, You know, I, I took your thousand and I made five. He says, Great. You know, you, you made five. 5,000 more. And the master says, you know, I'm going to put you in charge of five cities. And on and on. The point being that God has given you talent, treasure, and time. He's given you your life. He wants you to invest your life and multiply it in the service of Jesus. Because this... Parables are there for a reason. This is not like make-believe. It's not like, oh, that's kind of a nice little story about, you know, being dedicated to Jesus. No, this is reality. When Jesus says that you're going to be in charge of ten cities, when he says that to the guy, he really is going to be in charge of ten cities. And to me, this speaks immensely against the notion that heaven is going to be a bunch of people just sitting around on couches strumming guitars or harps. 
No. That parable tells me that in the future, in the new heavens and the new earth, there are going to be things called cities. There's going to be jobs. There's going to be responsibility. You're going to be active. You're not going to strum a harp. Get that out of your head. You are not going to be sitting around doing nothing. You're going to... It tells me, uh, whatever the future is, you're going to be active, you're going to be busy. And what you are then is determined by how you live now. You are becoming forever. You're becoming now what you will be forever. R.C. Sproul once says, right now counts forever. Right now counts forever. Everything you do right now is going to count forever. And I think we need to keep that in mind. There are no insignificant conversations. There are no insignificant actions. Every time you pray for somebody, it counts. Every time you help somebody with a few little groceries, it counts. Every time you smile at somebody and ask them how they're doing, it counts. Every time you put your hand on somebody's shoulder and and tell them that God loves them, that counts. Everything counts. Jesus doesn't miss anything, you know? Well, I gave a little Bible to somebody last week, but I don't think Jesus saw it. He probably forgot about it. Do you really think Jesus forgot about that? I don't think so. He sees everything you do, and everything you do counts. Push in the chips, you know. Get, get, let's go all in. Go all in for Jesus. Get it all on the table and say, there's nothing left. Once you go all in, you got all the money in the middle of the table, you're done. Then you've got nothing left. And I'm saying, if you go all in with Jesus, you cannot lose. You cannot lose when Jesus is running the game. And he has chosen you to be one of his people. He has saved you. And he has said, you know, come on in. You're you're my kids. And I'm going to bless you for now and throughout all of eternity. I know it's hard to focus in the fog of war on all of this. When we are bombarded every day with so many things, it's like, you know, you're driving down the highway and all you see is the fog. But I think by the grace of God and with his help, he can kind of take the scales off our eyes, he can clear away the fog, and he can help us see Jesus high and lifted up. Live for him. He's there. Ask God to clear away the fog and to give you eyes to see him right now. Let's pray. Come on, join me in prayer right now. And just give your life to the Lord. Ask him to clear away the scales, to clear away the fog, to give you eyes to see your inheritance. Oh, ask him right now to give you eternal life. Ask him to forgive you of your sins. Ask him right now to help you see what he is calling you to be. We love you, Lord. Come and work in our lives. Give us eyes to see. And we ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you all. You have a good week. You've been listening to the Sunday morning message broadcast from Church of God Holiness in El Dorado Springs. Our messages are archived at www.eldochurch.com or to order compact discs or DVD videos of the messages, call the church at 417-876-2200. Thank you for listening.